Today's word comes from Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 20. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of God. Before I uh, start today's message, and we'll get into part two of our brief but important series, Suffering on the Cross, I, I want to just tell you one cool thing. So yesterday... I was part of the prayer team at the prayer station, and um, as we said, something like 70 to 80 cars, like 175 cars, uh, came to receive prayer. Um, when uh, when Damon and I, you know, con- you know, conceived of having this prayer station, uh, I, I was thinking, okay, if a dozen cars come, that'll be a really good day. <laughs> All right, but we had like 70 something, and you know, there was actually it was getting backed up. And uh, more than half of the cars came, and they wanted the um, they wanted to be prayed for in Spanish. A lot of our 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 our, our neighbors around here are you know Spanish is their primary language, and we um, we had uh, conferred with um, a sister in the Trinity Church. Um, you know she speaks fluent Spanish, and she regularly does um, you know um, evangelistic outreach in Spanish. So, you know she she must have prayed for at least. Like 25 people or 30 people, she was like really exhausted by the end of the day. But the line would back up, and because there's only one person, so in the middle, we're like, "Can somebody else pray in Spanish?" And you know what? Who, who stepped up? James Cho stepped up, guys. <laughs> and so he was thinking, "I don't know if I can do this." But as he kept doing it, he he got more and more confident, so his prayers started getting longer. And so, um, anyway, just this is—I um, just want to celebrate that we are a church that's seeking to reach the nations of Silicon Valley. And James was awesome yesterday. All right. So, um, okay, let's 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 actually get to the, the the message. As I said, we're in part two. I gave a <laughs> gave quite a, a sermon last week, and um, today, as I came into church. Our sister Joy said, Pastor Susan, I'm very excited to see, to listen to part two of the suffering message. And I said, you, I was thinking, she is strange. <laughs> um, so, I'll, I'll just give you the basic gist of it. Um, if you're called to Christ, you're called to suffer. <laughs> okay? That's, that's basically what we're preaching. And, but... I want to show you how from the Bible and in life, why that's good. 
And today I want to teach you about atonement. Um, in our confession of sin, I gave you this, you know, it's, some people pointed this at one mint. Atonement means to answer for, answer for the pain and the violation, the debt that sin caused, this great horrible blockage in the relationship. Somebody has to answer that. Somebody has to do something when the relationship, when someone violates the relationship. And so a lot of people think sin, so there's this, you know, we're a post-Christian culture. Some people grew up in the church. They know that Christians have, you know, like there's rules. It's, it's strange to me that you go to the company and your company has a thousand rules. You go to your university and they impose a thousand rules upon you. You go to church and there's a few rules from the Bible and then they get really mad about the Bible's rules. But nobody complains about the really onerous and um, oppressive rules coming from everywhere else. And they think that if you break the rules, that's sin and, you know, like that's kind of arbitrary. But that's, sin is a far more deep and horrible thing than that inside the relationship, if it cannot be at one, that thing that breaks it, that's sin. <laughs> and somebody has to be able to get in there and answer for that. And the word that the theologians have used is atonement. And the passage we look at today is talking about how God offers atonement. Okay? And so I want to talk about the relevance of that and the relevance of that to the issue of suffering. Okay. Part one, atoning with body and blood. Atoning with body and blood. That's how atoning happens. It's not done with money, okay? It's done with body and blood. Part two, um, becoming more human by loving like God. Becoming more human by loving like God. Our culture, who doesn't believe you're supposed to be loving? Everybody believes you're supposed to love. Love is the answer, right? Love is all we need, right? But you've got to have real love and love like God. Okay? Becoming more human by loving like God. Part three, finding yourself by losing yourself. Okay? I'm going to reference back to what we talked about last week and what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, which we learned last week. Finding yourself by losing yourself. Okay? So let's go into the passage. Um, so if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, you know that Christians do this, this strange ritual, this rite. Um, it's, it's called a sacrament. In Christian vocabulary, it's a sacrament. Um, some people call it the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. Some people call it um, Eucharist. All Christians do this. Um, they may do it a little bit differently. The Catholics, you know, typically have the priest stand up, and then everybody kind of comes along. Uh, a lot of Protestant churches, you know, the, the elders will come up and serve you. We're, we're kind of doing, with COVID, we're going like more Protestant style. But even though we're a, a Protestant church, Usually we do it a little bit more Catholic style. We usually come up and you receive the elements like that. And some churches do it 
twice a year. Some churches do it every week. We're a once a, once a month church. And there's multiple places in the Bible that, uh, where Jesus institutes uh, the practice. And this is one of them, all right? This is, this is one of these places. And you know, I don't often preach from this, but we're moving toward you know, the great central mystery of, of our faith. That's what Good Friday Easter is. And I don't know if you have, I've said this before, but I just want to reemphasize this. Every single Sunday really is Resurrection Sunday, okay? That is the very purpose of moving. So historically, uh, God's people worshiped on the seventh day. That's Saturday, okay? Sabbath, historically for Jews, is the seventh day. It starts Friday night. That's the way Jews traditionally keep it, Friday night to Saturday night. It's the seventh day. But Christians moved it to the first day because the first day is when the very first down payment of what the new life in Christ looked like, when resurrection happened, and so that's why we worship on Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. I don't know if you know that. And it's especially emphasized on the Sundays when we do the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, um, what we're remembering, Jesus says, do this every time you, you do this, you, you're remembering me. And every time when we're doing this, the central thing we're remembering is atonement. That's what it is. So, I already said this to you. It's not just rules. Sin is when there's, there's something that is violates and is destroying the relationship. And so here we're talking about the fundamental relationship between us and God. And that's a pretty bad relationship to mess up. Because if you do not have a relationship with God, um, you're apart from him. And right now you think, well, I don't know if I need God. But if you are forever without God, well, we have a word for that that's called hell. <laughs> to not have a relationship with God is hell, just to be in hell. I don't know if you want to call it a place, but primarily hell is not primarily a place. Hell is primarily a being. It's a state. It's lacking a relationship with God. And so if we're going to have a relationship with God, you're going to be with God. You're going to have his presence. All his beauty, all his love, all his glory. And then, of course, life itself, because apart from God, there isn't life. Then there must be atonement. Okay, there must be atonement. And so let's just say, let's just, I just want to point out a few things here out of this passage. Verse 15, all right? He, that is Jesus, said to the disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So I want to just start here. Jesus went to the cross. The cross, the central work he's doing is to remove the violation, the problem, which basically puts us in hell apart from God. So that we will not know God. We will not be loved by God. We won't even have life because, you know, you think you can have life apart from God. But if you're alive in hell, you're basically dead forever. Okay? Whatever that looks like. And it's a horrible thing. But 
I want you to just see this. It's a really simple thing. But before I suffer, atonement is suffering. There is no such thing as atonement without cost. The cost is to suffer. Badly. So that's why the central symbol of Christianity is the cross. And if you believe in the Son of God and the redemptive work of the Son of God and you receive atonement, you must always remember their suffering. That's what it took to answer the problem so that you and I don't end up without God, which is another is saying, don't end up in hell. That's to put it, to put it that way, okay? Now, he goes on a couple of other things he says, all right? So let's go to, let's go to verse 19. And he, that is again, Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, what do you think about this? Most of you, when you think of your body, you think of, a, a, you know, your, your, your physicality. You, the body is a strange thing, because it isn't quite exactly you, but it is. <laughs> Your body is you, but your body is a part of you. It's, it's interesting. It's both. So when Jesus says, this is my body, you, when, you, when you are going, to, when Jesus is going to do atonement, he's going to do it with his body. He's going to give his body. He's going to give himself. And so he's saying, it's going to cost my body. It's going to cost me. That's another way. It's an odd thing. So I just want you to understand, there's a strange, there's both, it is him and it is not quite him. It's a part of him. And all atoning includes the body, includes the self. Okay, that's the first part. Okay? So atoning is done with the body and with the self. Okay? Let's go on. Um, it's a, and then he goes on to say, all right, let me find this here. Verse 19. Uh, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, verse 20, he took the cup. After they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So let, let's just, simple words, but chock full of meaning. Is the new covenant. Here's what he's saying. There's a new sealed relationship. It's a relationship which is unbreakable. You want to have a relationship with me, I'm always with you, and you are always with me. We are one together. It doesn't mean you lose your identity. Your identity is assured and complete, and you will always live one with me. That's covenant. Okay, so, you know, we, we really don't really understand covenant very well. Just, for instance, you know, that's what marriage is. Your roommate is, um, you know, my son was, we were going to call this morning, he was talking about where he's going to live next year, and he was talking about this guy who might be his roommate. <laughs> okay, you're not in covenant with your roommate. Maybe you're in a contract. So, it's here today, gone tomorrow. It's not a covenant. It, it's, it doesn't seal you into a oneness. 
you just share space and pay some money, and maybe your roommate, you know, cleans the toilet. <laughs> you know, okay, so something like that, okay? It's like you do the dishes, he cleans the toilet, and then, and then it's the year's over, bye, okay? It's not covenant. Covenant is more like marriage. You know, there are two people, and they don't stop being themselves, but then they become one. And here, Jesus is saying, this is a cup of this relationship. And you know what? And what does it take? It takes blood. <laughs> now, why does it take blood? I want to just, just offer you, um, the, the Bible has all kinds of words about this. Now, I know in the 21st century, we're really squeamish about this. We're very, very squeamish about this concept of blood. Uh, the, the, I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> Jesus, Lamb of God, blood. Okay, well, okay. Just here's a couple of verses. Leviticus chapter 17 and 11. I read this um, at the beginning of our service. For the life of the blood is in the flesh. The life, I mean, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Let me say it again. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. So it's. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Here's what it means. In the Bible, you know, if, you're, if, you, if, you, you know, if you bleed out, everybody just knows this. If you get cut, you bleed out, well, you die, <laughs> right? It's just a, it's a simple biological fact. So blood represents life. That's what it means. So again and again in the Bible, the blood represents life. And in order for there to be atonement of sins, life has to be poured out. You know how you pay for sins? Atonement for yourself? You pay with life. You know how that's symbolized? With blood. Because blood in the Bible is life. Shedding of blood is paying with life. That's what it is. And that's why God himself became a human being so he can have blood, so he can have our life, the life that we understand. Because if we say, oh, he's just eternal, you know, he always has life, I guess there isn't much to pay. But as soon as he becomes a human being, oh, he could pay. And he could pay with blood. Right? Just another verse, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. We violate the law. We violate the moral commandment. We violate that which can actually make. So you can't actually have real covenant unless there's true moral law. Just imagine, just, just, just do it this way. There's a law. Um, you shall not bear you know, falsities against your wife. You shall not commit adultery against your wife. That's a law, right? Just imagine if you live in a society... That, doesn't, that thinks it's okay if a husband can sleep with other women. That's not part of the law. It's like, it's like okay, we got married. The next day, he's sleeping with prostitutes. That's a totally different kind of relationship. In the Bible, there's a law. You get married, you're at one. Well, you can't sleep with her now. <laughs> so you violate the law. It has to be purified. Here we go with blood, with life. 
So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9.22. So this is just, I just, just picked two verses. There's other, many verses. The Bible, this is, this is the fundamental assumption of the Bible. If there's going to be real life, life is seen through blood. And if there's going to be a payment for a violation against real life and real loving inside of a deep binding at one relationship covenant, then there must be shedding of blood. Okay? Okay. Thanks. So interesting. Not. Right? That just sounds like some kind of primitive religious ritual. Oh, so primitive. I want to tell you a story to help you to um, see it's not primitive. It's far from primitive. If you... um, or a human being, there has to be a real answer for when someone sins and breaks a relationship where two are supposed to be one, and they're broken so that the two become two, <laughs> not one. So let me just, um, I wrote this down so I don't, I don't stray too long, okay? <laughs> so just here, here. Here's a listen story. There's a couple, all right? The husband is average. Like, I came up with the story. So it's a kind of, it's a fictional story, but it's not, <laughs> okay? It's not a fictional story. It's more like a parable. And I hope when you hear this, you'll go, oh, I get it. So there's a couple. The husband is average. Not super good looking. Not ugly. Not super genius. Not dumb. Okay? Not rich. Not famous. Not successful. But he's not poor. He's not on the streets. He's average. So, he's usually quite decent. He makes okay money. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He doesn't blow and waste money. He's not an addict. He drinks sometimes, usually not very much, but occasionally. Drinks a bit. He's not an addict on gambling. He had no problem with drugs, no problem with painkillers, none of that, okay? He goes to church sometimes, but his faith is um, iffy. Not sure if he's actually born again in Jesus, right? He genuinely loves his kids and his wife, but sometimes he can be emotionally distant, but usually to the kids, he's gentle and kind. Okay. When I was growing up, this kind of man was common. (laughs) It's totally common. Just a total average Joe, right? Today, this kind of guy is really above average because you can marry this kind of guy. <laughs> Today, this kind of guy, I said he's average, but he's like well above average today because our culture really, it really sucks. Today, this would, like this kind of guy would have just been like your total C dude. 
okay? Maybe he pops up to C plus or C minus. He's your total C dude and very marriable when I was growing up. Most people would have fallen right into a category like this, most guys. Today, this guy is way above average, but just, 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 just describe him, okay? So let's go on. They have two children, a son and a daughter. He can be tough on the son, but is usually strongly supportive and pushes him to do his best. He's a doting father to his daughter. He adores her and probably favors her over his son. And he kind of spoils her. He doesn't quite realize it, but she has this look. I mean, he would never admit it, or he doesn't even think about it, but she kind of has this look and this energy that reminds him of his wife when they were first falling in love. And so it makes him feel young when he's around this cute little girl. She's kind of beautiful in a way that reminds him of when he was young. So when his daughter's being cute, and you know a girl like this knows how to be cute, to him she could do no wrong. So in this way, she thinks he's a wonderful daddy to her, but actually he's really not quite the best daddy to her because he kind of spoils her, and she knows how to manipulate him. You get what I'm saying? So... Maybe he kind of knows she's manipulating him, but he doesn't really care. And he lets her get away with it all the time. Still, she's, you know, she's this cute little girl, and she's a bit of a sensitive soul, and she adores her dad. Why not? He adores her. And she feels like she can conquer the world when he shines his great face, and he starts laughing and tickles her and compliments her, okay? This dad is a weakness. It doesn't come up often, but it's not a small weakness. When he's stressed or depressed, he drinks a lot. He's not an alcoholic. In his normal everyday, he can totally take it or leave it. Doesn't even keep alcohol in the house, right? But when he's stressed or depressed, it's different. And when he gets this way, when he gets really drunk, he takes stuff out on his wife and on his son. And when he's drunk, he can be thin-skinned and he can get really angry. So usually, the vast majority of the time, he would never do this there's a few times he's hit his wife. She didn't get seriously injured. Okay? But he slapped her hard enough on her face to bruise her. And in the morning, he sobered up, saw the bruise, and he felt super guilty. And so then, you know, like, he went to church, like, every week for the next two to three months to try to make her feel happy and, um, you know, try to get, you know, the guilt out with God. But then he goes back to being himself, right? 
Worse than the physical violence when he's drunk is actually his tongue. The worst sin is actually what he says. You know, you ever this sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will, you know, can never hurt me? That is totally wrong. Your bones will heal, but some words get into your soul and they do not heal. This is what's in this marriage. So he, when he gets drunk, he says horrible things and he knows all the weaknesses of his wife and he uses these words and he stabs her with these words in the most sensitive place of her heart. And he blames her and he puts her down because when he's stressed, he feels like he's this little man that doesn't matter in the world. And by putting her down, he feels like he makes himself feel better, like a bigger man, by putting her down. So in about 12 years of marriage, he's hit her three times. Now, that's not a lot as far as physical abuse is concerned, but of course, that's three times too much, right? So I just want to say this to you. If you're listening to this message today, I don't know how many times you ever hit your wife. If you've ever hit your wife, one time is too many times. Okay? One time is too many times. Now, let me just say this really bluntly. If you hit your wife once, you, you deserve to burn forever. <laughs> like forever. But in this guy's case, the stuff he says with his tongue, that's what makes him truly damnable. See, sometimes you're like, I never hit my wife. Or some of you are like, well, you know, I never cheated on my husband. But what have you ever said? Think about that. Your tongue could be your most horrible weapon. Think about that, okay? So, First time he entered, she was shocked. Um, but the hitting, she got over. But the wounds of his tongue, that made her think about divorce. She couldn't get over those. She's a godly woman. She really knows the Lord. She really loves him. She never misses church. She loves serving in church. So she loves little kids. She, goes, she does like children's ministry. And she does it for Jesus. Like zero self-righteousness or legalism in it. Okay? She prays regularly, but she doesn't really know her Bible very well. Okay? That's not that too uncommon. And she's decided, I'm going to remember the good parts of my husband and try to forgive him and keep the marriage together. On her good days, she keeps the marriage together for herself and for Jesus. And on the low days, she keeps the marriage together just for the kids. <laughs> on the bad days, she basically hates his guts, wants to forgive him. In her heart, she cannot forgive him but she pushes through for the kids, okay? Okay, that's an interesting story. 
Then her mom got cancer. Her parents didn't have good health insurance. And so they asked for, you know, the daughter and her husband's help. Her husband, he's a really good guy, or so he thinks, and generally he is. 98% of the time, he is. Right? So he's willing to help. In order to help pay for the treatment for his mother-in-law's cancer, they had to go into debt. And the debt wasn't was serious. And so he genuinely loves his mother-in-law. And so he did it willingly. Right? And so they're going into a bad place financially. But mother-in-law is being, her life is being saved. So their debt makes their life feel tight. And it's less comfortable. They can't eat as nice stuff. Their vacations are, you know, they take fewer vacations. And they don't go to nice places, okay? And they don't shop for nice clothes. And... The life became more stressful, especially for him, because he's the main breadwinner, okay? His career's been okay. Okay, he doesn't work in a sexy industry. He doesn't have a hotshot job. He doesn't make tons of money, but he makes decent money, okay? And he works for a good company, but not a great company. So again, solid, but not great. He has a really good friend at the company. It's his best friend at the company. It was a guy he knew in college. And when the guy was down on his luck, he helped him get this job in his own company. So this is his best friend in his company. Now along comes this time when this promotion is coming up. He really badly wants this promotion. If he gets this promotion, they can start kicking out some of this debt and, like, stress will start to ease in his life. But his friend also wants that promotion. And at this crucial moment in the company, his friend stabs him in the back, lies about them to his boss, and steps on him and takes the promotion. And when he finds out about it, he is absolutely furious. Like F-bombs are dropping out of his mouth. But he's not just angry, he's super hurt. Like he loves this friend, but he wants to kill this friend <laughs> all at the same time. So the day he finds out, he doesn't come home for dinner. What do you think he does? Doesn't comes home late, and he puts away a lot to drink. And um, comes home, and what do you think happens? Comes home, and he slaps his wife. Blames her. Her mother. If it weren't for your mother. And this deeply wounds her. And then when his son, you know, his son is just getting into those 
like junior high years, so his son starts knowing what's going on. When his son comes, he pops his son. And says some really horrible stuff to him. The girl, was, she was asleep. You know, she's younger. She, she, didn't get it. she didn't see any of it. So, in the morning, the wife wakes up. She didn't sleep for very long because most of the evening she cried. Her cries were loud wailing to God. Praying, praying, praying. Do I leave him? If I leave him, my mom might, we can't pay for the, we can't pay for the cancer treatment. If I leave him, our daughter, her heart will be totally broken. And if I leave him, my son may hate his father and be enraged. And yet, she's so wounded, she wants to leave it. So she cries and cries and cries. And asks God for the help to forgive him. In the morning she wakes up and her son is livid. You can tell it's like he won't say a word at the breakfast table. There's like this darkness and this anger in his face that she's never seen before. And so what does mom do? She defends her husband to her son and reminds him that 98% of the time he's a very decent and good father and husband. She doesn't want to say these things. She doesn't feel it. That's what she says. But she talks to her daughter. She's decided, I'm never going to say a bad word to my daughter about her daddy. She goes and hangs out with her girlfriends. She, she, before she goes to work, she puts this makeup on her face to cover up the bruise. And when she goes and hangs out with her friends, and they start complaining about their husband. My husband's this. My husband's that. My husband's not good in bed. My husband looks at other women. I caught him looking at porn. She won't say anything like that. And for the next two weeks, she just cries every single night. He's sleeping on the couch. And she doesn't go to bed. She just cries to the Lord. Okay. That's the end of the story. Do any know what I'm talking about here? Well, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about here. Just change some of the details. 
I knew a sister in the Lord. Her mom was abusive. Her dad was a coward. I mean, just change the details. Because our mom would beat the heck out of her. It's crazy. This guy's not even abusive, if you want to say that way. So, what does the wife do when she does all these things? We don't use this word. You know what she's doing? She's atoning. She puts the makeup over the bruise. With her body, she's atoning. See it? As she's crying, her tears are coming out. Her soul is just being poured out in just unbelievable pain. This pain is just being poured out in her all the time. You know what it feels like? It feels like blood is just, she's just gushing. Her soul feels like it's just gushing blood. Her life is just pouring out. And in order to stay with him, this is what it takes. So the choice is, get the F out. <laughs> or, atonement. Those are the choices. She's choosing to love her husband to love her mother, to love her son, to love her daughter, to love her God. With her body and with her blood, she's paying for atonement. Okay? Love costs atonement. All right, let me go to part two. I can't go long because I'm running out of time. I want to say this. When Jesus forgave you, he atoned for you. So now let's just put it this way. God is the wife in this story. You and I are the husband. You think you're good. You think you're good 98% of the time. If you were good 98% of the time, you'd be actually really, really good. But you're really not. But you're such which is what you think you are. But that's just, okay, that's just your average, general, legalistic Phariseeism, okay? But that's kind of how we are. We're the husband. Jesus is like the wife. And when we do the Lord's Supper, he atones with his body and his blood so that he does not cast us out. He doesn't say, get the F out. <laughs> Even though you deserve it. <laughs> That's the gospel. But here's the thing. What is he doing when he does this? He's loving you. He's loving us. Love, at the center of love, is atonement. 
And when he loves us, so I'm going to take us back to last week. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Pick up your cross daily, every day, and follow me. You know what he's saying? So I'm going to love you. I'm going to atone for you. So now we will be at one. Why? So that you can love the way I love you. You can love like God. You can truly love. You can really, really love. So when you have relationships with other people that you're supposed to be at one with, and they say the words that make you just gush blood out of your heart, and you want to murder them, Jesus says, I atone so that you can atone. If you will love, you will suffer. There is no real loving without real suffering. Because in this world, there is nobody who doesn't sin. And there's nobody who will not screw up the relationship. So if you're really, really lucky, you'll just look at your daughter and she'll just make you happy all the time even when she's sinning against you. In the future, you'll pay for this at some point. She'll try to manipulate you when she's 30 years old and you never really loved her properly. You'll pay for it at some point. But it'll feel good. And then at some point, when the sin really stabs you, it's time for atonement. That's what it's like. And so the drama of the gospel is, Jesus loves you. He really loves you. How do you know? He suffered. He paid. So there'll be no sin in the relationship and he could keep loving you. I want to say this thing before I go to the close of my sermon. Um, some of you are going like, okay, there's got to be a third way. Okay, I got to love people, but maybe I won't love them that much. And I don't know if I want to get into any relationships where I have to be at one, like super committed. Okay. You know what that means? That means you're not loving. Don't lie to yourself. If you're going to choose this path, you're not loving. You know why our society is horrible? It's a loveless society. Because a lot of people think you can go through life and not have any real commitment to somebody else where that they will become at one with you. You're in them and they're in you. So if they start to die, you start to die. If you screw it up, they will hurt. If they screw up, you will hurt. Because you're afraid. If you love somebody this much, you get, this is what happens. So I just won't love anybody that much. Let me tell you something. If you don't love anybody that much, you don't love them, okay? You call it love, you just like them. <laughs> That's it. 
You don't love your child. You just like them. You don't love your wife. You just like her. And then when you stop liking her, you divorce her. This is the BS of our culture. So there's all these people out here today who think, I'm a good person. I'm probably going to go to heaven. You're not. You're going to go to hell. It's not true. You don't love. There's so many people today. They don't love anybody. Zero. They love zero people. Zero. And every now and then, it shows up in their life that they don't know how to love anybody, and then they don't even love themselves. That's where we are. So I want to give you this quote from C.S. Lewis, and this is like a perfect description of our culture, okay? Oh, where is it? To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. That's what a lot of people are doing today. Not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Check out your Yelp stream and just be on Netflix all the time, but you don't have to love anybody. Avoid all entanglements. Lock your heart up safe, like in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Hear what that means? Irredeemable? It's called hell. To love is to be vulnerable. Well, let me put it this way. To love is to suffer. To love is to suffer. Okay, let me close because we need some good news, okay? I want to close by going back to last week's passage. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke chapter 9, verse 24. So, loving others is to pay with your body and with your blood. That is love. That's really living. It's actually living. <laughs> if you're not paying with your body and your blood, you're not living. You're just dying. You're just breathing, eating, waiting to die. You're just... You're just... Preparing yourself for hell. But to love others with your body and with your blood, with your soul, to atone for others, that's living. 
If you do this, you're going to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm dying. I'm dying. None of us wants to do this because it hurts. You know, I have this other uh, way of describing sin. It's Martin Luther. He calls it the incurvatus of the soul. Your soul is curved in on itself. It's always trying to like look inside of its soul to make yourself happy. You're curved in. So here's what we do. Your soul is curved in on itself. It's always trying to make yourself happy. It's super empty. You're always trying to fill it up. It's so empty. You just fill it up. Money, sex, pleasure, food, okay, vacations, promotions, somebody else admiring you, whatever. It's like you shove all stuff in there and it doesn't work. In gravitas of the soul, okay? So, you know how you get rid of in gravitas of the soul? By loving. That's how. You stop curving in, you bring your soul out. How do you bring your soul out? You use your body and you shed blood. You shed your soul out. You pour it out by loving. And then your soul won't be curved in on itself and empty. Instead, you'll become new. You start becoming like an eternal living being. Let me put it this way. You become like Christ. And here's the great part. When you start to do this, it says, this is the way Jesus put it, for whoever will save his life will lose it. You know what you're losing? You're losing the incurvatus of the soul. You're losing that pathetic self that will not love. That's always choosing this selfish, empty, junky, just like selfish little coffin of yourself. It's hopeless. But when you choose to love, it's going to hurt. But when you hurt, you're going to live. You're going to live. This is the gift of Christ. See, salvation is totally free. You never earn anything, okay? You don't learn, earn nothing, okay? But it's, in a sense, not free. It's interesting. On the one hand, you earn nothing. But you know what it's going to cost you? Your old self. When you lose your old self, you should rejoice. You're becoming more human. You're becoming heavenly. You're living. You're loving. You're making yourself fit for heaven. And you're saving other people's life. First and foremost, your own. Of course, you can't do it. Jesus does it. He did it first for you so that when we hit that point where we can't do it, we remember. See, do this in remembrance of me. He did it for us. And then you'll be able to do it. And you'll become a new you that you never thought you could be. Your children, your spouse, your neighbors will change. Become absolutely glorious. 
when you and I die to ourselves this way through the suffering and atoning of love itself that we've received from Jesus. Let's pray. This is your answer, <laughs> Lord Jesus. There actually is no other answer. We were made to be like you and refuse to be like you. We're actually just choosing hell. We were made to be loved. We were made to love. And if we don't love, we're dead. We're the walking dead. We think we're alive, but we're just hopelessly dead. But thank you, Lord Jesus. You refuse to let us have second best. So you refuse to compromise with our wickedness. You refuse to let us not love. You, you came, you atoned for us, you loved us. You loved us, you atoned for us. It's the same thing. You loved us so that we would be alive and love like you. I don't know how people who are messing, listening to this message will feel about this. Only by your grace and by your power, the power of your death and resurrection, because there's no way it's not in us. We'd rather be demons. We'd rather be selfish. We'd rather be like, like beasts and animals chewing on each other. But thank you that you choose us to be like the Son of God, to make us divine. And help us today to have faith and choose divinity, to choose eternity, to choose love, and willingly, gladly pick up our cross and take the suffering so we would know of your glory and of your goodness and the depths of your love forever and ever. In Jesus' name.